All right. Uh, first of all, welcome to the show. <laughs> I was just thinking any excuse to play Flight of the Concords. Not that this is an excuse. This is a really interesting topic. One of three topics we will talk about today. A little bit later in the show, we're going to... Um, Actually, we're going to basically do a segment that was supposed to be, we had hoped it would be part of our de-extinction show. Uh, and we couldn't get the guest at that time, but we've been craving it ever since, if you can say that, about the notion of basically preserving and banking samples of human feces. Uh, there's There needs to be a poop bank because, in fact, we don't all have the same biome. And as certain biomes become extinct, well, anyway, I'll explain the whole thing to you in the next segment. Uh, and then finally, we'll talk about orcas um, bumping up into and maybe bite, taking bites out of boats. It's not what you think, though. It's not Jaws. It's not Moby Dick. Uh, we'll tell you all about that in the final segment. But right now, we're going to talk about hippopotamuses. Uh, and here to do that is Shoshi Parks, a freelance writer, an anthropologist by training, wrote a piece for Smithsonian Magazine about how the U.S. almost became a nation of hippo ranchers. Yeah, you probably missed that in your history class. One of those things they didn't teach you. Uh, first of all, welcome to the show, Shoshi Parks. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So this is exciting. This is a piece for Smithsonian. It really has gotten, it's really made the rounds to all the people like Matthew Ingram who pick up pieces like this and send it out. Everybody sent it out. Uh, it's just so damn interesting. So it all starts not with a hippopotamus, but with something called the water hyacinth, what was the water hyacinth and why did something supposedly have to be done about it? Yeah, that's right. So the water hyacinth is an invasive plant um, from South America. But when it first arrived in the U.S. in 1884, it was really billed as the next spectacular ornamental plant that um, you know people could plant in their gardens and in waterways and, and really just you know liven up the the south with these beautiful plants um, and so at the cotton states exposition in 1884 which was like a regional world's fair they were just handing this plant out and sort of you know for free and telling people you know go go plant it go make the world beautiful so um, yeah this, it, so it did make the world beautiful but there was a problem with it right <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, it didn't just make the world beautiful. It, it really took over the waterways of Louisiana and Florida. Um, and so much so that those passages, you know, waterways that have been used for, you know, decades suddenly became almost impassable by boats. Um, and this this plant just was growing absolutely out of control, like a virus across across the South. So this is where the idea of hippos come in. I'm not sure hippos is the first place my mind would have gone. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but we, should add, we should say uh, there was another prevailing condition that may have played into this, and that was the idea of meat becoming more expensive. Tell us about that part. Yeah, that's right. So simultaneously, um, in around the turn of the 20th century, uh, the U.S. was going through a meat shortage, uh, and the 
there just didn't seem to be enough meat to go around. And, and that had sort of become part of the new American dream was, was the idea that, you know, immigrants could come from mostly from Europe at that time um, and, you know, have meat at every meal. And then suddenly at the turn of the century, turn of the 20th century, they couldn't anymore. And so people were really up in arms about the fact that, you know, there, there was no meat. They were blaming, you know, everybody they could there, the meat packing industry really had a monopoly on um, the accessibility of meat and how much meat could be produced. And, and uh, um, it, you know, it was just folks, folks were really upset about, you know, the possibility of having to eat vegetarian meals, uh, you know, once or twice a day. So you get two problems. You got a water hyacinth, an invasive plant species ch- choking up the waterways. You don't have quite as much meat as you might like. And well, when you put it that way, why wouldn't Louisiana Congressman Robert Broussard think what we need here are hippos? So tell us about him and where this idea comes from. Yeah, yeah, it's such a wild story, isn't it? Um, so this Louisiana Congressman Robert Broussard, he um, came up with the idea that if one, if if the the South could bring in a whole bunch of hippos um, and begin ranching them, those hippos could not only eat the water hyacinth from the waterways in which they're living in, but then they could also be slaughtered for their meat. Um, and of course, hippos are massive animals; they can be uh, more than nine thousand pounds. So that meat would, you know, really solve the the meat um, crisis at the time. As well by providing folks around the country with what um, the New York Times called Lake Cow Bacon. Yeah, this is the one time people didn't say it tastes just like chicken, right? They said it <laughs> yeah, tastes like right. a combination of pork and beef. Pork um, and beef, yeah. It's the other white meat, the other, other white meat. <laughs> right. So, um, so yeah, I mean, one of the people, I mean, this whole thing seems insane as we're sitting here talking about it, but one person who didn't think it was entirely insane was uh, former President Theodore Roosevelt. Yeah, he was fully supportive of the um, potential bill going into Congress and, you know, bringing in hippos. Um, And it wasn't just hippos. Uh, It would have potentially um, given them the license to bring in up to 100 different animals from around the world um, and install them in different areas of the country on lands that were deemed sort of unused at the time, mostly because the U.S. had already forcibly removed native peoples from uh, much of their land across the country. So for example, uh, the deserts of the Southwest, which were now considered unoccupied, could be a great home for free free roaming rhinoceroses. Um, The Rocky Mountains could have Tibetan yak, uh, and all of these animals could then be, you know, either hunted or um, ranched uh, to provide additional meat for for American consumers. Yeah, what could go wrong? Haven't these people ever seen <laughs> Jurassic Park? Well, wait a minute. It was the 19th century. They hadn't seen Jurassic Park. So, um, so yeah, and there were some other problems with hippos, right? <laughs> First of all, they're, they're big job. It's like you had one job, eat water hyacinths. What about that one job? Yeah, so hippos, turns out, uh, probably would never have even really eaten the water hyacinth in the first place uh, because hippos actually don't tend to feed much in the water. They do spend most of their days in the water, but at night they exit the waterways and um, graze on grasses on land. So they, even if they, um, you know, had been put into the Louisiana and Florida waterways, they probably would not have done much to destroy the water hyacinth at all. 
And even if they had been eating it, it turns out that the water hyacinth is actually mostly water content. So um, the the plant itself would not have provided much nutrition for the hippo. Um, I spoke to uh, one researcher of, of invasive plants who said that the hippo probably would have even you know lost weight if they had been consuming primarily water hyacinth. So wouldn't have been a good feed anyway. Yeah, actually, I'm on one of those water hyacinth fad diets right now. I've lost 35 pounds. <laughs> so, um, so no, I can, works, right? I can yeah. vouch for the, for the fact that it works. So yeah, there's sort of all of that. And then I, I'm sure this is one of these statistics that kind of waxes and wanes. But I'm sort of dimly aware, possibly in the way of a meso fact, that hippos are like really dangerous, that they they kill more human beings than a lot of other animals that get blamed for killing a lot of human beings. Yeah, they're actually one of the most dangerous animals on the planet. And I, I think the current sort of general statistic is that they kill around 500 people a year. Um, and, you know, on top of that, they're just massive, massive creatures. So it's it's kind of ridiculous to think that, you know, some family farmer in, you know, the bayous of Louisiana would be able to build a, a fence strong enough to keep a 9,000 pound hippo from, you know, easily busting through and, you know, wreaking havoc on the other, you know, landscape. It might have been sort of good news for the reputation of like wolves, right? Because you're not going to say the wolves are attacking my hippos. <laughs> the wolf, wolf wouldn't stand a chance. So, um, so yeah, there's all of this, you know, and it, it tends to suggest that maybe hippos would not necessarily adapt very well to a new environment, except for, and I had forgotten all about this, but I did know about it like a year or two ago, that there are a lot of hippos elsewhere in the so-called new world in Colombia, right? Thanks to uh, one Pablo Escobar, uh, a notorious drug lord. Tell us about those hippos. Yeah, that's right. So Pablo Escobar, um, prior to his capture, uh, was a you know massive drug kingpin in Colombia. And he had his own personal zoo, which at the time contained four hippos. I think it was like three females and a male. Um, and when he was captured, all of those, or at least many of those animals were released, including the hippos. So they were just kind of let loose in that region of Colombia. And since then, they have really just taken to that environment. And their population has exploded from that original four to around 80 different individuals. Um, and they've just completely caused you know, wreaked havoc on the river system um, in that region um, and and upended the sort of natural ecological balance. You know, I am starting to think that, though, and maybe this is something we can collaborate on. I think there's a, you know, a Netflix series or movies movie here, <laughs> a kind of an alternate reality Broussard world where it's 2023 and we have lots of yaks and hippos and rhinos you know, rampaging through the streets of Baton Rouge. Um, I don't know. I think we might have – get me Jeff Goldblum's people right now, Kat. Uh, <laughs> it's just one of those things where you sort of wonder where we would be right now if any of that had happened. Yeah, you really do. And, um, you know, I think the the entire U.S. would be absolutely – the environment would be completely different across the board, um, not just in the south where the hippos were, but, yeah, in those, you know, rhinoceros deserts and, you know, the Rocky Mountains. Um 
the the entire ecosystem would look look very different than than it does today. I mean, there's a long history of this kind of thing. Certainly, uh, in, in the Caribbean, Caribbean and other places, for example, they had a problem with snakes. They thought, let's bring in mongooses. So they brought in mongooses who killed the snakes in about ten minutes. You know, there were like no snakes left by the end of the first day, and then mongooses just started killing chickens and kind of turning into raccoons that go into the trash and mess up things. And it's like we never really learn our lesson. Although I guess there are still attempts, maybe more subtle attempts. I think you use the phrase, if you squint a little, there are still little subtle attempts to see if you could deal with one problem by introducing another invasive thing. Yeah. I mean, we now know, of course, as you say, that um, bringing in one invasive species to try to tamp down another is just um, really a, a recipe for disaster. But it turns out that actually there is a form of... Um, they call it biological control agents, um, call them biological control agents. There, it it's, means introducing a new species into an area um, that can, in a targeted way, try to help with a, um, you know, an issue such as the overgrowth of water hyacinth. So with the water hyacinth themselves, um, there has in recent years been a biological control agent that that was introduced. It's a tiny South American water insect that feeds on the sap of the water hyacinth. Um, and that has helped to control it a little. Um, they're still dealing with the water hyacinth to this day and, you know, investing millions of dollars um, per decade into the problem. Um, but these biological controls that are used today, they, they tend to be really tiny creatures, you know, often insects, and they go through a really extensive process of, of research. Um, I was told it, it takes, you know, around 10 years to get a, a particular, you know, animal or species uh, approved to be a biological control agent. This has been fascinating. And you're a terrific guest, Ashoshi Parks. And plus, we have this whole Netflix project we're working on now. <laughs> yes. Uh, wrote a piece for Smithsonian Magazine. Think big. Think big. Think money. This is not, you know, there's a writer's strike. We shouldn't try to take advantage of that, though. That would make us scabs. Uh, Smithsonian Magazine piece on how the U.S. almost became a nation of hippo ranchers. Thanks so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This was fun. All right. This was fun. We'll take a break. And the long-awaited poop segment will run. Give it to Gravy Davy. Everybody eats when they come to my house. Try a tomato plate too. Here's Cacciatore Dore. Taste of bologna Tony. Everybody eats when they come to my house. I fix your favorite dishes. Hoping this good food fills ya. Work my hands to the Support for this podcast comes from Hartford Healthcare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to Hartford for recovery. 
For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash elevatinghealth. Support for Connecticut Public Radio comes from the Adventure Park at Stores. Celebrating their 10th anniversary, zip line and climbing fun in the trees for kids, teens, adults, and groups. Outdoor axe throwing, too. Reservations at myadventurepark.com. Today in Connecticut History with Walt Woodward is funded by Yukon History. Today in 1948, Connecticut's first television station, WNHC, now WTNH, signed on in New Haven. It was the brainchild of pasta salesman Aldo D. Domenicis, who convinced a TV manufacturer that if they'd give him the equipment to start a station, he'd sell a lot of TV sets. Boy, did he. Subscribe at todayinctshistory.com. Nearly two years after the fall of the government in Afghanistan, people are still fleeing the Taliban and coming to the United States, only to find more uncertainty in this country's immigration system. This is uh, the confirmation of my residence. So this is not, we don't take this. That story on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen this afternoon at four. Support comes from Ocean State Job Lot. Support comes from Walden Local Meat, offering 100% grass-fed beef and pasture-raised pork and chicken, plus seafood and more for summer gatherings. Walden is committed to building our local food system by partnering with farmers in the Northeast. WaldenLocalMeat.com Oh, do-do-do What you done-done-done before Baby Do-do-do What I do-do-do Adore what can I say? I'm very immature. Uh, but yes, so we were doing a de-extinction episode a few weeks ago, or maybe longer than that. Uh, and one of the things that we talked about is the notion of sort of de-extincting poop. There's ways in which uh, there are people right now who have a certain kind of biome. Uh, and because their way of life may be changing, the place where they live may be uh, being kind of eradicated or altered beyond recognition, um, whatever exists in their gut. Uh, may also go away. So I think I'm stating this right. But if I'm not, our guest is going to straighten us out. Dr. Maria Gloria Dominguez-Bello is a professor at Rutgers University, president of the Microbiota, I hope I'm saying that, Biota or Biota Vault. Uh, And she is joining us now. Hi. Hi. Thank you for inviting me. Is it Microbiota or Microbiota? Microbiota. Biota, okay. Biota. A mistake I'll never make again. I have an accent, so I may say it with an accent, but it's <laughs> microbiota. Like the biota you were referring to yeah. before? Yes, exactly. That is microbiota. So, in mm-hmm. fact, the reason you weren't on our de-extinction show was that you were on a field trip uh, in the Amazon. Was that connected to this whole thing that we're talking about? Um, yes and no. So, I do... I have my own research lab and I do, uh, I investigate what microbes are disappearing with urbanization uh, from the gut, but we know we are also altering ecosystems. So there are microbes in the soil, in the oceans, in the rivers that are also being impacted by human activities. Uh, My focus is on the human microbiome and especially in the feces, in the intestine, uh, because it's very important for health. And I want to study what what are the microbes that disappear and what functions do they take away? Um, so that's my research at Rutgers. Um, but I, I'm also, as you mentioned, um, 
I'm the president of the Microbiota Vault, which is a global uh, initiative by many people uh, to preserve the current diversity of microbiotas in the world before urbanization and agriculture um, disappear, you know, some of the components. Right. And we'll come back to that in just a second, but let's sort of stretch out the concept that you're talking about first. So as I understand it, if you look at people at the at the guts of and the biomes in the guts of people living more or less traditional, less urban lifestyles, they could be living in very different parts of the planet. But there might be some similarities uh, in the biomes uh, of those people just because That's they're living exactly that kind of life. So. Yeah. Say a little bit more about that. Yes. Yeah, so when we compare the microbiomes of uh, the intestinal microbiomes of different peoples in the world, uh, from very traditional societies, the most traditional ones are still in the Amazon, recently contacted, for example, uh, Amerindian peoples. Uh, we also have uh, exposed, still living traditional lives, but connected with urban uh, and with medicine, etc., and then the towns and then the cities. What we observe in that gradient of urbanization is that the microbiome diversity is drastically reduced. And so between the extremes, between Yanomami indigenous peoples from Venezuela that were first contacted in 2012 to the US, uh, the difference is 50%. We have 50% less different bacteria than they do. So does it matter? That's the main, the big question. And we think it matters because it, with urbanization, there is another very important phenomenon. And that is that as societies urbanize, they control infectious diseases because they use antibiotics and medicines, but we are trading diseases. They are uh, controlling infectious diseases as, at the cost of increasing uh, diseases that are generated in early life that have to do with uh, abnormal immune response or metabolic response. And these include the current plagues. The current plagues are allergies to foods, asthma, um, inflammation conditions in the colon, um, type 1 diabetes that used to be called juvenile diabetes and now it's it, it, you know the onset is at 4 years of age so there are all these diseases some cancers autism has been correlated and again we need research to investigate to what extent the loss of microbes may be uh, ill educating the immune system that then generates these oftentimes autoimmune diseases or diseases that involve high inflammation. Right. So it's urbanization and and a lot of things that go with urbanization and ways in which that sort of takes people away from a traditional diet, maybe living a little closer to the land in the case of the traditional people, eating more pro, eating more processed uh, and packaged stuff. In, in and the, antibiotics. Yes, and I was just coming to antibiotics. <laughs> yes. And so antibiotics, they're the good news and the bad news. They're why you don't want to live in the Middle Ages because you could die of an infection that's treatable now. But there's a big price that we pay with antibiotics, uh, given us a sense of that price. Yes, correct. So <clears throat> the sense of the price is, is precisely the reason why people with traditional 
traditional lifestyles want to collaborate in these studies because you know they know of medicine of course uh, but they also know that there are new diseases that are coming their way uh, that we don't understand why why do we have to trade infectious diseases for chronic diseases so it, it's not only in the interest of the urban world to stop this trend and revert but it's also in the interest of traditional peoples of the world that are integrating their kids or grandkids will end up being urban. According to the WHO, only the urban part of the world population will be growing from now on. We have already passed the 50% um, urban rural population. So obviously the, the, the suggestion, the very strong, powerful suggestion is that there, there are probably things in that biome, the kind of biome you have, the closer you live to the land, the more traditional, less urban lifestyle that you have, there are probably things in your gut that are maybe helping you ward off some of these uh, diseases that we kind of associate with um, modern life or exacerbations uh, of those diseases within modern urban life. The problem is, I would assume, we don't know exactly what those things are. So that that's when the argument comes in for really just there's no other way to say it, right? You have to collect feces from certain groups and figure out how to preserve them so they can be studied. Exactly. And that is the beginning of the Microbiota Vault initiative is to collect. We started with feces, but we, we are interested also in expanding to other microbial ecosystems, including soils and you know other environments, uh, other sites of the human body, because uh, all microbes are been threatened by our um, very antimicrobial urban practices. So we started with the feces a little bit because of um, opportunistic windows of funding. Um, And the idea is to have what we do is we don't go and collect. We have a network of local collections very much connected to academia. So every country in the UN has a university at least, at least one. So we we are making a network of scientists from these universities, microbiologists, and helping them to, in a standard way, create a local collection. And then the Microbiota Vault offers them the opportunity to um, deposit a backup of that local collection to which they only they are the only ones who have access. Uh, and we also offer them free sequencing of the DNA there so that everybody knows the catalog of bacteria that are in that sample. And then uh, people, we can connect the people who have the resources for research with the people who not having resources for economic resources have the biodiversity resource and then foster research that way. So uh, if you're going to have a vault, there's got to be a a place for it to be a vault. What's a country we think we associate with vaults? Well, Switzerland, they've got lots of other kinds of banking there. Is that, in fact, where the first microbiota vault is? Well, we are considering Switzerland. Uh, That's where the pilot study is happening. Uh, We also are considering Norway, where they have the seed vault the vault for the seeds of plants of the world is in Svalbard archipelago in uh, Norway. 
we think because of the political situation, et cetera, um, maybe we should, uh, we are considering and we should think of a redundant repository, uh, say in Patagonia, in the South Pole, so that people can, instead of depositing one collection, one set, they could deposit two sets if they want. One goes to Europe and the other goes somewhere else far from current uh, world wars. Um, yeah, Europe is uh, having this war and, you yeah. know, again, it's concerning what's the security level in Europe right now. And is it sort of just traditional freezing? You take the, the feces sample and you just freeze it the way you would? I don't know. I mean, there are vaccines that have to be at incredibly low temperatures when they're stored and shipped. Uh, I, I hate yeah. to pry into a subject as personal as poop, but like, how does it have to be treated? Right. So right now we are in the pilot phase and we are investigating what else in addition to liquid nitrogen, which is the coldest way you can freeze something. Uh, it's also independent of plugging, you know, freezers plug anywhere in, in Ghana as well as in the UK or in the US are at risk because somebody can unplug them by mistake. Um, everybody has gone through that tragedy in labs. So uh, liquid nitrogen is safer. We have to replenish it, uh, but that is, sub is better than uh, plugging. In addition, we could lyophilize, which is drying the sample once it's frozen, taking away the water. So it's called also dry freezing, freeze drying. Um, and there are other preservants that we could add. And all this is being researched in the pilot study in Switzerland now. All right. We're going to have to stop there. This is fascinating stuff. If you're listening now and you're wondering if this has anything specifically to do with you, don't overuse anti antibiotics. Don't use them just because you got a virus. It won't help anyway. Uh, Dr. Maria Gloria Dominguez-Bello is a professor at the university, uh, at Rutgers University and the president of the Microbiota Vault. Now some nice people are going to ask you to support our show. I hope you will do that. And then we will come back with another segment. I'm Ray Hartman. Season three of Where Art Thou is just around the corner. I'll be back on the road meeting incredible Connecticut artists. You'll hear their stories and we'll throw in a few surprises as well. Season three of Where Art Thou premieres June 9th on CPTV. For more, visit ctpublic.org WAT. Support provided by the Richard P. Garmini Fund at the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving, the State of Connecticut Office of Film, Television, and Digital Media, and Connecticut Humanities. First of all, I need to thank, uh, I want to thank our technical producer, Kat Pastor, who is uh, under the weather with a sinus infection today, but is soldiering on boldly. Uh, and the producer of this episode is McCusker, formerly Carolyn McCusker, but she just rebranded, you know, like Morrissey. 
or Magruder. Uh, anyway, she is the uh, producer of this episode, and Lily Tyson's our senior producer. And I'm sure there's some other people I should thank, but I don't know who they are right now. Meanwhile, uh, it's time to talk about a phenomenon you may have read about recently or seen something on television. It's about orcas. I grew up calling them killer whales. I'm very old. Uh, it's about orcas who are it appears to be either attacking or playing with, depending on who you talk to, boats, uh, very uh, specifically at times yachts and catamarans, sometimes seeming to be very interested in rudders. So uh, here to unravel some of this and perhaps dispel our terrible fears, uh, Monica Whelan-Shields is the co-founder and director of the Orca Behavior Institute and author, an author of Endangered Orcas, the Story of Southern Residents. So, uh, first of all, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Um, I don't know if I described it uh, adequately at all, but maybe you could begin. Uh, we should say that you have been uh, observing orcas in Washington since 2000. Um, as you understand this relatively new phenomenon, how do you understand it, what it seems to be happening, and maybe it's not even all that new a phenomenon for all I know? Yeah, it's actually something that's been going on in this specific region since 2020. And uh, so we're entering the fourth season of it. This seems to happen specifically in the spring and summertime. But these orcas, like you said, are seeking out uh, certain types of vessels. They're interacting with specifically the rudder mechanism uh, seems to be what's attracting them. And while it feels like an attack, I'm sure, to the people on board, and it's kind of scary as they're you know being pushed around by, by these whales, um, from the whale's perspective, I'm not sure that it's aggressive. I think from from their view, it's more of a game or some type of, you know, engaging interaction. There's something about this, you know, these rudders that are fascinating them. So uh, we should talk a little bit more about that, but maybe just also begin, for those of us who have only a very primitive understanding of the animal we're talking about, uh, tell us a little bit about the orca as a living organism, and, and also specifically the size of the animal. I, I think it's sort of hard to put that into perspective vis-a-vis -vis the boats that are being played around with. Yeah, orcas are actually really similar to humans in a lot of ways in that they're long-lived. They can live to be 50, 60, 70, 80 years old. Um, their development is very similar where they're uh, juveniles, you know, until they're eight or 10 years old, they go through puberty, but don't reach full maturity until about ages 18 or 20. And then females uh, go through menopause in their 40s and have this extended post-reproductive life period. Uh, what's one thing that's unique about orcas is these long-term social bonds that they have where offspring tend to stay with their mothers um, in family units, uh, in some cases like here in Washington with our southern residents for their entire lives. So these are very intelligent, highly social, and complex animals. Um, in terms of their size, you know, adults can range, uh, whether a female or a male, between 20 and 30 feet long. So they're about the size of some of these vessels that they're interacting with. So uh, like I said, understandable that it might be scary if you have an animal the same size as your boat coming over and, and investigating it or, or pushing it around a little bit. Yeah, and we should say that so far there's been nothing that resembles, I don't know, Moby Dick or Jaws or there's no in, you know indication that the orcas want to get the people in the water so they can eat them. Uh, nothing along those lines. But some of the boats have either been sunk or rendered ineffectual, uh, unsailable. Um, and, and so... 
let's start with a theory that would seem kind of intuitive for a lot of us, which is that humankind has done nothing but visit trouble upon all kinds of uh, creatures in the sea and land for that matter. Um, you know, why wouldn't they come to resent boats or um, associate boats with with trauma or disturbances to them. There's all kinds of things that get done, right? Including, I think there's some kind of sonic sonic bombs that have been thrown into the water to do certain things. I mean, why wouldn't orcas be kind of, you know, down on boats? I know there's there's a lot of appeal to that theory. I think a lot of people would actually be on the side of the orcas, even right? Like, mm-hmm. oh, nature's fi- finally fighting back for all these terrible things that we're doing. But uh, like you alluded to, we've we've done a lot of things to orcas around the world that would have, I think, provoked this type of response in the past. Um, you know, military testing exercises with sonar that you know drastically affect their ability to hear. Um, in some cases, in interactions with fisheries, they've been shot at. Uh, here in Washington State, back in the 60s and 70s, we removed their young from their family groups for display in marine aquaria. And none of these things have triggered that type of aggressive response from the whales. And I think if, if something would have done it, you know, those those situations would have been good candidates for it. So it just doesn't seem like uh, orcas are interested in being that aggressive towards humans. There's never been a case of a wild orca attacking or killing a human. And in this specific population over in uh, Spain and Portugal, while there are some interactions with fisheries over there, we haven't heard of any specific incident uh, that might have preceded these interactions with boats. So while it's a sort of a, a headline, you know, clickbait theory as to while the orcas are, are fighting back, um, there just isn't much evidence that that's the actual motivation for the whales. So orcas are playful, right? I mean, there's also a very plausible argument that they're doing doing something that resembles play. But tell us more about that. Absolutely. Uh, you know, along with being long lived and social comes the emotional capacity for all kinds of things, including play. And we see different types of novel played behaviors develop in different populations of orcas around the world. Uh, here in Washington, one thing we see from our mammal eating bigs killer whales is they interact with crab pot gear. So they'll pull buoys underwater, they'll drag the pots around, and uh, sometimes to the point people think they're entangled, but then after a few minutes or a few hours, they, they move on and they're just fine. And, and that's a behavior that seems to have spread you know, among the, some of the males in this population. And I think it's received less media attention because it's not quite as destructive and not quite as uh, directly interactive with humans. But I think what's going on over there is similar in that one whale discovered something that was intriguing about playing with these rudders and then, you know, shared it with its family members or its, uh, you know, associates. And the behavior has slowly uh, spread through uh, that population. Yeah, there's it was even one theory that I, I read also that they also may like the kind of the feeling of the prop wash of a propeller and might be swim, swimming up behind the boat for, for that reason, just feeling it on their faces. I and mean, does that seem plausible? Yeah, I mean, orcas are the largest member of the dolphin family, and uh, dolphins are kind of notorious for bow riding or wake riding on vessels, and sometimes that includes sort of playing in the prop wash. So it's certainly a behavior that orcas can engage in as well. Can you give us some other examples of things that orcas do that might kind of fall into that category of, well, say, a behavioral fad? Yeah, one example that's uh, well known from our southern resident killer whales uh, here in the state of Washington, they're fish eating whales. And back in the 80s, a fad that came up was, uh, we call it salmon hats. They would 
uh, carry, you know, they would catch and kill a fish as they normally do, but then they would uh, carry it around on their heads for a short period of time before consuming it. And one whale did this, pushing around a salmon at the surface on top of their head. It spread through the population. Um, it was really popular one summer. They did it a little bit the next year, and then it just disappeared. So again, no other real explanation for this type of behavior than just goofing around. So I read about this one gentleman who who has had different boats. I think he actually maybe transports boats to their new owners or something. But the, he's had two boats that were you know damaged pretty heavily, and and he felt like the second time the orcas were sneaking up uh, on the rudder a, l- <laughs> a little bit more deliberately, maybe not making any kind of high pitched noises or uh, that they. I mean, once again, this sort of fits into the idea of a game, maybe as you start to play the game, if you're an orca, you think, well, what if they didn't even know we were coming? But I mean, is it possible that they would be thinking it through that carefully? Absolutely. I mean, they're tactical hunters and they hunt cooperatively in groups and they have to plan out, um, you know, pursuit of prey. And in different places in the world, they eat different things, you know, including sharks, rays, fish, and other marine mammals. So if they're if they're hunting something, uh, you know, like a gray whale calf, um, that takes planning and forethought and they, they work as a team. And so it makes sense that that would uh, carry over into play behavior as well. And, and that's something I've heard as reading about these incidents too, is that they are often sneaking up where folks don't realize there are orcas in the area and then boom, they're right there off the back of the vessel. So obviously the concern here is that, that in many ways the evolution of public opinion over, say, the last 20 years or so has been toward understanding these animals as, you know, part of a species that doesn't prey on humans or have any real aggressive tendencies towards humans uh, and a species that deserves uh, tolerance, coexistence, and preservation. And now suddenly you've got this story. And we should emphasize that it's like 13 orcas in the vicinity of Spain, right? They don't have TikTok. They can't tell each other about this. Uh, and then they can start. Sh- they should start doing it uh, over a co- a, off our West Coast or something. But you're even okay. starting to hear from people who, who wonder if it's safe to go in the water. Exactly. Orcas are found all over the world. And so I understand maybe the concern from folks who aren't familiar with them that this might spread and become a global phenomenon. But everywhere we find orcas, they're in these distinct populations. They have their own unique cultures and they're pretty insular in that they don't you know, relate or interact with other orca populations. So there's no reason to believe that, that this behavior would spread beyond this specific population. And you're exactly right. You know, going back Before uh, the 60s, killer whales, orcas were sort of feared as these bloodthirsty predators. They were considered kind of ferocious monsters, and and we were afraid of them most of the time. And and that image has really transformed as we, you know, gain more understanding and respect for uh, their their capabilities, their way of life. And uh, that is my concern, is that folks take this as something that, you know, should inspire invoke fear and that we should, you know, be scared to go out on the water, be scared to go in the water. But again, while I'm sure it's, it feels scary for the people that are uh, on the vessels when this is happening, uh, there's doesn't seem any sort of intent on the part of the whales to be aggressive towards humans specifically. And I hope it just inspires awe and makes us think about, you know, what, what are they doing and what are these animals capable of rather than, uh, oh, this is a, a predator that we need to be afraid of. Yeah, I have to ask you one more question, although I know we're running out of time here. But it just occurred to me that, for example, I, in my limited experience, have gone kayaking in the waters around the San Juan Islands. 
I mean, if an orca really wanted to, you know, mess up a human being, <laughs> kayak, I mean, kayaking in some place where they could, you know, conceivable, conceivably approach you, you know, you're much more vulnerable there. But I assume there's no real evidence. I mean, they don't do to kayaks what they do to, say, rudders in Spain, right? Not at all. Um, yeah, when you're in a kayak, you're definitely a visitor in their environment, right? And, mm-hmm. and sort of at their mercy uh, if if they wanted to do something. And We've never even had an orca so much as tip over a kayak here. Um, I've heard a couple cases where amazingly the whale will actually gently lift the kayak out of the water and then mm-hmm. gently set it back down again. So mm-hmm. again, sort of that curiosity, that investigation of their environment, but nothing at all aggressive. All right. So that's an important message and a good message to leave with. So uh, first of all, Monica uh, Whelan-Shields is the co-founder and director of the Orca Behavior Institute, author of Endangered Orcas, the Story of the Southern Residents. Thank you so much for visiting with us today. Yeah, thanks again for having me. And the rest of you, stop being worried about orcas. They should be more worried about you. I hope you enjoyed today's show, uh, and we'll be back tomorrow. Right from wrong For the people all said sit down Sit down, you're rocking a boat People all said sit down Sit down, you're rocking a boat And the devil will drag you under By the sharp lapel of your checkered coat Sit down, sit down